We are in the David series, and this is, I think, installment number four of the life of David. Before we get started, I got to ask you a question. You ever had a bad boss? You ever had a bad boss or an authority figure that uh, was no good? You know, maybe a parent that was pretty rough on you, or uh, a boss that was just, yeah, you know, one of those bosses, or a coach, or, you know, the the leader of the band or whatever it was who couldn't recognize your talent or was jealous or something weird and it was just one of those situations. You've had those situations, right? You've experienced that where it's like, oh, this is hard. This is hard. So before we even head down the road of this message, I want you to take solace and, and, and joy and relief in one thought that David had it a lot worse than you did. Okay, that you're not alone in that and that, and that King David had it far worse than any of us have. I think David had it far worse than anyone in the scripture aside from Jesus himself when it came to, uh, to being mistreated. And you know what? I don't know of anyone other than Jesus himself in the scriptures who had more joy than King David in the midst of all of that. It's possible to have joy in all circumstances. So uh, that's where where we're at today. You know, from the from the time of uh, David's anointing as king, he was anointed by Saul or by Samuel. Remember, we said he was least likely to succeed. You know, no one picked this guy to be the next king. You know, and yet he was anointed. From the time he was anointed till he became king, somewhere between ten and fifteen years. Okay, probably closer to the fifteen year mark from the time he's anointed until he actually becomes king. The majority of that time. He is literally running for his life because Saul is trying to kill him. And he has the entire Israel army chasing this one guy trying to kill him. And it's not just that Saul's his boss, because he is. He's the, that's, this is his commander in chief. He directly reports to this general, okay? And this general's trying to kill him. It's also that it's the king of his country, okay? Which is a big deal. It's also that it's his father-in-law. Okay, so his father-in-law, boss, and uh, the king of his country, his commander-in-chief, this guy is out to literally kill him, you know, and takes an entire army with him to go get him. How bad's your boss? You know, <laughs> how bad's your boss? How bad was your day? You know, and this is for, for, for close to 15 years. David is going through this. Now, there's so much for us to learn in this past, in, in this uh, portion of David's life. And the thing is, is that uh, we know that, that there's a lot to learn because God dedicates some serious time to it. Thirteen chapters of 1 Samuel. Thirteen chapters are spent not on the life of David. The life of David, God spends so much time in the scriptures on the life of David. But he spends 13 chapters specifically on this period of him suffering under Saul. God wants us to learn something from that period of David's life. There's no question about it. He gave that much of the scriptures to it. And uh, so we have a few minutes here and 13 chapters to get through. So, you know, it's going to be uh, an interesting morning trying to cover 13 chapters of David's life. And uh, we're obviously not going to be able to do it justice. And there's all sorts of things to learn about. There, you can learn about maintaining hope in difficult circumstances, about friendship that's incredible friendship. And we will come back and touch on Jonathan and David in a couple weeks and their friendship that that really has some special things happen, not just during this period, but also during this period. Um, But but I believe that there's one thing in particular that screams from this passage. 
that are, is all through these 13 chapters. From the period where David is beats Goliath and he comes onto the scene until the time where he becomes king. And that whole period in there, there's one thing. God is making him into the man that he's supposed to be for the kingdom. That God is establishing his authority. God is establishing the authority of God inside of David through this long haul. And that's what we need to see. And authority is something that, that, you know, I don't know that we have a full appreciation for in America these days, that we understand it. Because there's so much messed up stuff about authority in our world, isn't there? I mean, it was within the last century, within the last hundred years. I mean, there was like the Stalin and Hitler thing, you know. And how many dictators and, and tyrannies have we seen across our globe that have just been like, really? You know, that's what authority does. That's what power does. But there's a big difference between controlling and manipulating people with a sense of power and having true authority. Isn't there a big difference between those two things? What was Jesus' position? <laughs> what was his position? He didn't have one, you know? He gave up all his positions and he didn't have one. He walked through his entire life. And who has carried more authority than Jesus? There's a difference between authority and position, although there also are positions of authority and we're told how to deal with those positions of authority. But in our, in, in, in the last hundred years, I mean, much less than that, we've also experienced, uh, leaders who were loved being assassinated. We've seen wars that people didn't know what to do with or understand why at times. And we've seen struggles around receiving authority. We've seen the 60s where we're throwing off authority. We've seen, uh, you know, back and forth all over the place. We saw Nixon and what happened with all of that, you know. And there's, there's constantly stuff around authority that when you look over the last hundred years in our nation, it's really hard for us to really appreciate and understand what true authority is actually all about. And in the last decade, when it comes to politics, you know, and you look at how what's gone on and how the, the mindset of the American public and the mindset of leaders in Washington and all of what's taken place there, I mean, there may not be a bigger topic of conversation or a bigger deal that the news talks about these days other than the distrust between people and leaders and the breach of all of that. And somewhere in the middle of that, there's a Bible that talks a lot about spiritual authority and it talks about how we're to deal with positions of authority and it talks about how we're to carry authority. And in 2 Timothy, it tells us that there will be dark days where there will be a form of godliness that will deny the power that lies within it. That there will be people who have a form on the outside of godliness but don't carry any spiritual authority. And what is, and, and the Bible desperately wants us to be people who walk in authority, who walk with strength. But what it says is in those dark days, people will, will be lovers of themselves instead of lovers of God. And it says in those days, people will be disobedient to their parents, is what it says. I love that. Like, it's a, it puts this tiny little thing in here where we talk about, you know, the banter. But it's like a gigantic deal. The breakdown of family in our world is because of a lack of understanding of authority and a lack of appreciation of authority and the abuse of positions of authority. And all in this topic of authority, God raises up a lion heart called David who understands not only how to submit to authority, but how to become an authority figure who leads 
in the presence of God and by the authority of God. And this period of David's life, we watch God grow him into that over 13 chapters of scripture. So we're going to do a survey of those 13 chapters uh, in a real brief way. And then I'm going to give us some applications. So first thing in the timeline here is that David um, gets discovered. Okay, he gets discovered. This is like America's Got Talent or, uh, you know, it's I forgot it at the first service too. What's the big one? American Idol uh, or uh, The Voice or something. I don't know, whatever those shows. I'm not into those shows, but there's all these shows about people being discovered for their, their talent. David was anointed as king, not because he was all of that, but because God saw his heart. But then there's a moment when he breaks out onto the scene and he has his big debut, his hit, you know? And what's his hit? He puts a rock in a piece of leather and he drops the Philistine giant and he cuts his head off. And he says, I'm here. You know, God says, David's on the scene. You know, here he is. This is a lion heart, and I'm going to do something in this guy. Now watch how this comes on the scene. Verse, in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, I love this, Saul discovers David. Verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Now, look at this. David hasn't killed Goliath yet. All he did was say, get this armor off of me, and I don't care what anyone else is doing. That guy's mocking God. I'm getting a rock, and I'm going out there, and I'm going to drop that guy. And Saul looks at him and says, who is this kid? Everyone else in my army is shaking in their boots. Whose son is this? Well, the answer is that he's Jesse's son, but that's not the real answer. He's God's son, and David knows it. And he will learn to discover it. Down in verse 57, it says, And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, then Abner took him and brought him before Saul. Okay, so now he actually killed the Philistine. And so now it's, it's, it wasn't just his confidence. It was also his competence. You know, it was God's power working through him. It says, get a hold of this guy and bring him back. And then if you look in chapter 18 and verse 2, you see what Saul does. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Why not? Seriously, why not? Why wouldn't he let him return to his dad's house? Yeah, he's like, you see that? That's a first round draft pick right there. I am grabbing that guy and not letting him go home and get persuaded of anything else. His dad thinks that he must be a great shepherd. He's not going back there. I'm putting him in my army. And so he does. And God grants him massive success. In verse five, it says, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. He had so much favor and blessing from God that, and, 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 you know, we talked today about God's presence and his anointing being with us, falling down like rain, empower and fill your people with authority, you know, and, and God's presence was so profoundly invested into David that everything he touched, he was successful at. And Saul had a winning guy on his team now, you know, he spotted the talent, he put him on his team, he was discovered, he came onto the scene, but it doesn't end there. Then, stage two of this thing is that there are some lines that are drawn, okay? Look down at verse six. 
It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. How do you think that went? Yeah, just like this. And Saul was very angry. (laughs) No joke. And... This saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now he's got his eye on him. First, he found him with his eye, and he's like, I want him on my team because he's going to help me win. And then he realized that the ladies were cheering for David, and he was like, wait a minute, that's not cool. You know, and he gets... They're jealous. And what's more is you see massive insecurities start to develop in Saul, where he was trying to use David in order to win, but now David becomes the threat because he's afraid that even if the kingdom wins, he might not win. And he's afraid of that because as a king, he should care about the kingdom more than himself, but it's obvious where Saul's heart has gone. Look now at uh, the next verse. It says, the next day, hang on to this one, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Ooh, what do you do with that one? A harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. And what does he do? It goes on to tell us that he decides to kill David. You know, he'd have these raving, there was something going on, you know, in his spirit, where it was, it was just, he, there was madness. And the only thing that would calm him down was music. So David would play music, and they'd have David come play his harp, you know. And then all of a sudden, Saul would pick up a spear and whip it at David. Imagine that. Man, nice boss. I'm playing good music for him and he throws a spear at me. How's your boss? Wow. Verse 12. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. How should we feel when God is with someone? I think we should be excited. I think we should be like, that is awesome. Have you seen God? Like the fruits of the spirit are so evident in that person. You see the joy spilling off of them, the confidence in them, the peace, the love and compassion they have for people. When they get hit, they have such self-control and gentleness. It's awesome. God's character is in them. That should make me happy. The only problem is, is when God's favor and blessing is not on my life, but I see it in someone else's life, it's easy for me to get scared and it's easy for me to get jealous and it's easy for me to get angry because they have something I don't and I feel threatened. Of course, someone who has the Spirit of God isn't interested in doing me harm anyway. But I always see things differently if I'm not functioning in confident faith in Christ. If I'm not walking in His presence, I'm seeing everything wrong. I'm not seeing it right. And that's what's going on. Saul can't see it right, so he's afraid of David. Did he have something to be afraid of in David? Man, no one loved Saul the way David did. No one honored this man more than David did. He had nothing to be afraid of. And yet, that's the one who he's afraid of. The one guy who does respect him is the guy who he's most afraid of. It's amazing how that works. Verse 15. And when Saul saw that he... (laughs) That Saul-Saul thing always gets me. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. You know, you can't really have authority with someone who you're petrified of. Realize that? Like if I'm super scared of someone, I don't have authority with them, you know? And the only way that I can't have authority when there's a rising young star and the only way I can not have fear is if my confidence is in the Lord. 
But Saul's confidence was no longer in the Lord because what it said back there is, is that he was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And Saul didn't have the presence and the confidence of the Lord, and so he was afraid. So what, is, what does he decide to do? He decides in drawing this line, he's like, I got my eye on this guy and I'm getting mad at him. So he decides to take him out and he tries to kill him. And you know, David, one of the things that was supposed to happen when he killed Goliath, one of the promises was that you get the, that you get the king's daughter in marriage. So he was supposed to get his oldest daughter, but Saul decided to give his daughter to someone else in marriage. Not cool, you know? And then, but then he decides, well, I have this other daughter and apparently there's something about this other daughter. And we do find out later some stuff about this other daughter, okay? But he said, Saul said, she'll be a snare to him. That's what he said about Michael. You know, yeah, she'll be a snare to him. So, again, well, what happens, though, I have a feeling that that was like she was going to be a pain with him, you know? And But the, the deal was is she actually fell in love with him. Like, I think it was probably that he thought, she's never going to go for David, you know? And uh, she's, like, got high standards, and David doesn't fit or whatever, and it's not going to work, and that's going to be a, a thorn in his side. But as it turns out, she falls in love with him, and then they want to get married. And Saul's like, oh, okay, well, obviously you can't afford a dowry to pay me for her, so I'll tell you what, you can just go and single-handedly kill a 100 Philistines, and then you can have her. And he's like, sweet. Now, I don't even have to kill David. The Philistines are going to. And of course, David just kills 100 Philistines like it's nothing and comes back and says, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? Now, think about it. The boss brought on the guy who's talented. All the ladies love him and he has success in everything he's doing. And now his daughter falls in love with this guy. Okay? Nothing can stop him. He gets more and more insecure in every moment as David grows in his success. And verse 28 says, But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, he knew God was with him. And that didn't help him because he wasn't interested in just what God was doing. He was interested in his own insecurities. He says, And when, when he saw that the Lord was with him and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Now here it is. So Saul was David's enemy continually. The line was drawn. We thought that we were fighting together against Philistines. It turns out that we're enemies, according to Saul. Now, what happens after that? That's the second stage of David's journey. The third stage is this. He's been anointed and he's broken out. You know, and then after he's broken out and been anointed, the second stage is is this moment where the, the the lines are drawn against him by Saul, and then he has this moment where after those lines are drawn, all the way until he becomes king, he has to be faithful inside of that. And so this is a long obedience in the same direction. Let me look at. Let me uh, turn with you over to chapter twenty three and verse fourteen. Look at what happens here. David, um, you know, uh, you know that uh, David eventually it gets so bad that he has to run away. He has to constantly run away uh, because otherwise he's going to get killed. And so he goes and he's hiding in the caves. And when he's hiding in the caves uh, because the whole Israelite army is coming after him, Saul eventually with all, you know, he has all his supplies. He has his food with him. He has all his drink with him. And so he eventually has to go to the bathroom. Okay, and uh, and so he goes into one of the caves to go to relieve himself. Now, David's in that cave, okay, 
when he comes in. Now we're going to get, we're going to get to that. Just remember that part of the story and rewind and listen to this verse. As, as Saul's chasing him all over the place, it says in verse 14, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him. How often? Every day, every day. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing to, to stand up in a worship service and say, God, man, I love you. I want my life to be about you. It's another thing at work when thing, there's injustice and I stand up and take a moment to slay a giant, you know, and say, everybody's afraid and won't do the right thing, but I'm going to have a moment here where I'm going to do the right thing and to step out with courage and do the right thing. That's hard, but that's a moment. You know what the hardest thing is? Is not to give our lives to God at a worship service or to step out once and do something courageous. The hardest thing is five years after that. When I wake up in the morning and my life is still really tough to wake up and have joy. The hard thing is when I've been oppressed by my boss for the last five years to not start talking bad about him. The hard thing in my life is when this friend of mine who's been uh, not so much of a friend for me to not start to hate her in my heart. The hard thing is after years, a day in and day out, to not give up hope and give up on my calling and to just check out and to learn to engage just in enjoying different things with my life instead of staying present in the kingdom of God. The hard part of following God is not done with the moment of the giant and a sling. The hard part is five years down the road when I realize everyone's flaws and I see all the mess and I'm relentlessly pursued by the enemy and I still have to trust God and keep my heart in the right place. Every day Saul pursued him. But what are the next two words? So, not there. But God. Those are the next two words. Every day, Saul pursued him. But God. Those are two of the coolest words in Scripture right there. You ever been able to look at your circumstances? If you've been walking with Jesus any length of time, you know this. That you've had moments where you've been like, this makes no sense. I can't believe that God has me in this situation. Where are you right now, God? I can't believe this person's doing this to me. If I only had enough resources, if this, if this, and that. But God. But God. But God. And God protected him. Day in and day out. So now here we are in the cave. And the fourth step in David's life is the big temptation. Here we are in the cave and Saul had to use the restroom and he goes into the cave and has no idea that the man who he's been chasing for years is sitting inside, deep inside this cave and all of David's guys are like, this is it, dude. God told you this was going to happen. He told you that he would bring your enemy right into your hands to do whatever you saw fit with, which is a quote they quoted. So David must have told them that God had said that to him. You know, And so God had said, I'm going to bring your enemy. I'm going to deliver him into your hands so that you can do what you want with him. And all his buddies are like, here it is. You know what you want to do with them. Get on with it. You know, 
Get rid of this guy and we're done with it. We're all tired. We're sick of this. You're the next king. This guy's a horrible king. He's oppressing everyone around. There's no life flowing from Saul to the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God. This guy's just draining all of our resources. Look, he's such a bad king that he's taken our whole army and all of our money and all of our resources from everyone's taxes. And what is he using it to? To try to kill our best warrior. This guy's out to lunch. Like He's psycho. It's time. Take him out. God gave him to you. Take him out. Everyone in this cave believes that this is what you're supposed to do. And David says, I will not raise a finger against the Lord's anointed. As a matter of fact, at first he sneaks up and cuts a little piece off of his robe. And then he's so convinced because he wanted to show Saul that he could have killed him and he didn't. But then he realized that he was kind of doing something that was inappropriate in that. And his conscience struck him and he went to the guys and he's like, I'm sorry, guys, I shouldn't have touched his robe. Can you imagine these guys and how mad they would have been at him? Like we've been running from this guy for years on end. Our lives are terrible and you should be killing him. And now you're whining to us because you cut a little corner off of his robe. And what David was saying is God put this man in place and I will not play the part of God by taking him out of that place. God anointed me to be king. God will make me king. God made this guy my boss. When it's time for him to not be my boss, God will say it. If you turn over to 26, it's another chapter 26. It's another opportunity where David has him right where he can take his life. And in verse 9, David says this, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So, tough boss, tough parent, tough whatever, you know? David says, it's not my place. You know, there's a moment when Jesus stands on a temple mount, and uh, and he knows if he jumps off, the angels will catch him, and Satan's trying to get him to do it. There's a moment where he's hungry, and he's told to turn stone into bread. There's a moment where he says, where Satan says, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you this entire planet right now. You can shortcut your calling if you'll just do it my way instead of your way. And David sits here, and he stares down the biggest temptation of his life prior to the throne, which is that God said this was mine, This guy's horrible and he's in the way. I should make this happen. I'm going to take control of the situation. And everyone around thinks it's what I should do. And he says, nope. If God's going to establish the throne, God's going to establish the throne. I'm not going to make this happen. There's a reason why David does that. Because David understood authority. This is what David understood. David understood that he didn't want to be God, that he wanted God honored. And there's two things, two principles about the way he understands authority. One is that he can't be party to stuff that's inappropriate. Did you guys, anybody ever see The Sound of Music, an old movie? There's a guy named Rolf. You know what Rolf does? He sells out and becomes a Nazi. And then he dimes out the whole family. You ever see the movie Swing Kids? Anyone ever see that? There's this another World War II movie, and there's this 
young actor who's only about this big in that movie. He's just a little guy. And his name's Christian Bale. Now he's a huge actor. Um, and in the moment, he does the same thing that Rolf does in Sound of Music. They get so sick of the pressure of being chased around by all these people that they eventually just sell out and buy into the party line and do whatever it takes, and they just sell out. David never once sells out. would have been easy to sell out and give Saul what he wanted and to play ball. He could have found a way to play ball that would have made Saul happy, I guarantee it, and been a, been a part of things. But he doesn't sell out. He doesn't sell out. He continues to hold his integrity. But you know what he also doesn't do? He never turns his head or his hand against Saul. Never once does he see it as his job. Saul says, we're enemies. But David, David understood that was his king. And so he's going to submit to him as such, no matter what. It's an amazing moment. You know what happens? Eventually, Saul does die in battle. And in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, um, this guy comes running to David with this news. And he's so excited. And he's jumping up and down, probably. That's my interpretation of it. He's obviously excited. With great joy, we're told, that he says to David, Saul's dead. He was killed in battle. You get to be king. It's finally over. And how does David respond to that? He has the man killed. Why in the world would David have the man killed? Because this man disrespected the throne of God. God put this man in place and you're rejoicing, celebrating a fallen man of God. I don't know what David should have done. I don't know how it all works. But what I do know is, is when it comes to being in a situation where there's oppressive authority, that my job is not to fix the authority. My job is to be obedient to God. My job is to be obedient and submissive to God. And if ever there's a moment where I have to call out authority, there's a couple things that I got to remember. One is I got to remember that if I have any vested self-interest in this thing at all, if this could in any way be about me, then I got to keep my mouth shut. David had no ability to actually deal with Saul because he realized that this is about his own success, not just about keeping Saul in check. And the second thing is if I ever actually have to confront authority and God's calling me to, it better be done with great prayer and fasting. And if I ever see a leader, even one who I can't honestly respect that much, if I see them fall, it should make me weep. And if it doesn't make me weep, I have a problem. It should always hurt should always hurt. Even the one who has abused me should make me hurt. That's what David said. Because there is a position there that he's put in place and my heart has to be in the right place, the heart of God. It hurts God's heart, it should hurt mine. Now, the only reason that worked is because David had given up his rights. David was like, life's not about me. Life's about the kingdom. And I'm not interested in getting what I want. If I have to sleep on rocks and caves the rest of my life, whatever, as long as God gets glory. This isn't about me. I don't need Saul to change in order for my life to get better. You know, it wasn't about him. It was about whatever God wanted. And because David had released his own rights and his own control, God was able to eventually make David one of the greatest kings to ever live because he had the ability to carry great power and not abuse it. And he learned to not abuse power, not when he had the power, but when he didn't have the power. That's when he learned it. 
So there's going to be a day, and we'll study this eventually, when Absalom, his son, tries to take the throne from him. And when you watch the difference of how he deals with Absalom versus how Saul dealt with him, you'll realize that he learned how to trust God way back when he was the kid being oppressed so that once he's the king, he's not insecure because he's learned to trust God. Okay, and here's the thing is that God has authority that he wants to give to Christians right now. He has the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. You ever read the the New Testament and read the greater things than Jesus says, greater things than I have done, you will do? He wasn't lying. Jesus doesn't do that, you know? And he has power that he wants to invest into Christians. He doesn't want us to just have a form of godliness and deny the power within. He wants us to carry his power. But here's the deal. In order to wield the power of God, we actually have to release our control and our selfishness. It can't be about me and it can't be about me controlling or else God can't give me the power. Why? Because if he gives me the power, I'll use it for myself. And for 13 years, he strips David of his selfishness and of his sense of control. So that eventually, it was so deeply ingrained in humility in David that when he anoints him as king, he's able to carry that power. He does abuse it. He does with Bathsheba and a couple other times. But in general, David is an incredible, incredible king carrying a massive amount of power because he had faith. And instead of trusting himself, he trusted God. Now, here's the application points. I want to give us a couple application points, okay? If we're people of faith, then there's four things that I think that this faith shows us, okay? First of all, it shows us that the safest place to be is in in submission to God, that security is only found in God. So there's a temptation to think that if, if my boss is okay, or if my spouse is okay, or my whoever I'm connected to is okay, if they're okay and they see me okay, that provides security for me. And it doesn't. Being under a good boss who appreciates me does not make me secure. What makes me secure is that when I honor God, that's what makes me secure. Because the biggest person in this room today is Jesus. Right now, he's the biggest, smartest, strongest. And I don't care who's rich, and I don't care who's smart, and I don't care who's powerful and influential. I don't have to nosy, mosey up to, nose up to them. I don't know how you say it. I don't have to be a brown noser to them. I don't have to be good with them. i got to be good with God. And so my security isn't in making sure I'm good with this person. My security is found in making sure I'm good with God, which means I do have to honor this person. I have to honor them because God told me to, and it doesn't matter what they do, I still have to honor them. Why? Because that's how I am under God, and that's the most secure place. The place of rest is not in taking control and making sure I'm being dealt with appropriately. The place of security is trusting God, and he'll take care of me appropriately. If I have anxiety about my circumstance and my situation and my leader, that's not because I'm trusting God obviously. Okay, so the second thing that faith understands is this, is that God's in control. He's the only one who's the controller of my circumstances, and therefore, and and he also has a plan for me right now. He has a plan in the midst of those circumstances. Do you remember who the, there was a harmful spirit that came upon Saul? Where'd it come from? From God. How do you deal with that? God sends a harmful spirit against Saul. You know, there's two other places that it makes me think of right off the bat. You remember Passover, the original Passover, when the people uh, um, were in, uh, in where were they, Egypt? And uh, they, when they were in Egypt, and God sends the angel of death that's going to come and wipe them out. God sent that. 
What do you do with that? Or when Job, remember Job had all that suffering and Satan had to come and ask God, can I go and torment Job? And he says, yeah, you can do this, but you can't do that. And, and, you know, he has authority over him. There's something that happens in those situations in the scripture that's really important principle for us to understand, that God is in control. It's not that God's out to harm us, so he's sending bad things at us to, to just hurt us. It's that good and evil are under God's control. Just because something is evil doesn't mean God's not in control. A harmful spirit comes and torments us. Guess what? God knows about it and he's okay with it because he's got a plan for it. So whatever it is that's going on in my life right now, I can rest in this. God knows about it. God's in control of it. And God's got a plan for it. And he wants to do something in this situation. And so i got to come to terms with that and realize I don't have to control this and I don't have to say, where's God? I can say, thank you, God. You have something for me in this moment. You have something for me and I'm going to be okay with that. I wasn't planning on saying this, but i got to say it real quick. There's this great story about this preacher. who There was hecklers who would follow him all over the place, these two hecklers. Everywhere he would go, he'd start preaching and they'd start yelling from the back. You know, all this stuff. And he'd yell at them back and he'd try to you know, get it figured out and nothing ever worked. Again, one night he has a dream and in the dream, he's sitting there next to Jesus and Jesus says, son, I want to show you something. And there comes rolling out on a cart Okay, there's this, there's this piece of rock and then there's these people who are chipping away at the rock with a mallet and a hammer and eventually he starts to see that this rock is being turned into a sculpture. And he says, look closer at that sculpture and see what it is. And he looks in and he realizes it's a sculpture of himself. And he says, I'm sculpting you. Meet my artists. And they turn around and it's the hecklers. And he said, go thank them because I have a plan for your life. And the next day, when he went out to preach, he went and he saw them. They were the first people when he got out of his car. And, and those people are there and they had signs and they're yelling at him. And he goes over and he shakes their hand. He says, I want to thank you for being an agent of God's work in my life. And he thanked them consistently for two weeks and then never saw them again. Which is exactly what David does with Saul. I don't care. God's in control. I will honor you. I will honor you. Honor you. By God, I will honor you. Because God's in control and he has a plan. Third thing that faith understands is this, that we still have responsibility in the midst of those circumstances. God is the one in control of the future. I'm the one who's responsible in the present. Okay, let me explain this. It says right in, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives this great parable. And at the end of it, he says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. It wasn't, if God said David was going to be king, it wasn't his job to make sure that he became king. It was his his job to trust God, that God would make him king. His job was not to change his circumstances. His job was to change the atmosphere. Okay? Hang on to that one. His job was not to change his circumstances. His job was to change the atmosphere. How many times am I deceived into thinking if my job was better, if my boss was better, if my, I was getting paid more, if my spouse would just do this, if this person would love me, or if this person would leave me alone, or if I had this kind of car or this kind of house or these kind of resources or whatever, circumstantially that I'd be in a better spot. And it's never true. Never, ever, ever, ever true. I've been given what I've been given right now. 
And there are moments when I'm called to change my circumstances. And those are the moments where God's given me authority to do something in my realm of influence. So if things are not appropriate for my kids in my home, it's my job to deal with that. At this church, if there are things that are inappropriate, I have a responsibility to be a part of that. But when I think about my boss and when I think about my broader circumstances, my job is not to change my circumstances. My job is to change my atmosphere, how I act, trusting God. The fourth thing and the last thing that we understand if we have eyes of faith is this, that God's best stuff is available in our worst circumstances. Raise your hand if you can identify with that. Some of you, I know it because many of you, I've walked with you through some very, very difficult circumstances and I've watched you know God better in those circumstances and you've done the same with me, you know? And this is, this is the way it works, you know, that speaking of that story of, of Job, you know? There's that my fa- one of my favorite quotes in all the Bible is at the end of all of Job's suffering, he still doesn't know what was going on behind the scenes, but this is what he says. After all his suffering, he says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What he realized was, I thought all my joy was because I had good kids and because I had a lot of wealth and I had all this stuff and I had a good life going. And then you stripped it all from me and I realized I was just getting in my own way because you were here the whole time and I had never seen you. But now that you took everything else away from me, I realized you're what I've got and you're my reward, which is why Paul says, I want to know you not just in the power of your resurrection, but in the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings, becoming like you in death. And so somehow to attain the resurrection. And that's it right there is that no matter what my circumstances are, that God has a plan, that God's in control and God wants to give me the blessing of having eyes open to see him and to experience him in this difficult spot. Can you relate to that? This is the last um, line here is David's closing word for us. Psalm 16, you know, the lines have been drawn against him by Saul, but he says this, The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Really, David? The lines have fallen for you in pleasant places? Yes. Because in this difficult space, God has given me the opportunity to know him. I don't know what your circumstances are. Don't worry about changing them. Live in them. God's in control. He's got you. He's got you. He's got a plan. Hang in there. Hold on for another day and God will deliver and he'll provide. Let's pray.